He is the oldest graduate of osteopathic medical school at 61 years old, a PhD in biomechanical engineering, a former NASA engineer and researcher, a pilot, and now an OMT doctor. He is a lifelong learner who enjoys serving others. Heck, he's almost 80 and is still working more than full time. He has an inquisitive mind and endless drive to look for the answers. In this episode, he shares with us his theory behind the cause of chronic low back pain, the importance of consistently practicing your OMT skills, and the importance of OMT research. Enjoy this conversation with the wise man, the sage, or maybe you would say the medicine man, Dr. Clarence Nicodemus. Before we get started, as always, let's listen to what one medical student thinks about OMT. Hello everyone, my name is Rosie Block and I'm a second year student at Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I'm so excited to have my actual voice on a podcast right now. I really love what Dr. Green has done with all of his segments so far and I've already listened to a few. So yeah, I will tell you all about what I love about OMM. And I think my favorite aspect is that it is that scene that you see from the movies or even from the, is there a doctor around? Because literally you can do so much with two hands that people didn't even think was possible or people don't even know about. So one of the best examples I can think of is I was literally swimming in um, Mexico and one of the older women got a cramp in her leg because the water was too cold and her calf was starting to hurt. And within seconds, there was an osteopath who was treating her leg. Actually, Dr. Gordon, he's on the podcast too. So if you're, if you're a fan favorite and you listen to it, that's him. But I got to see it right before my eyes and within seconds, her pain was gone. So my favorite thing about it is as a second year, I finally get the opportunity to use some of the stuff that I'm doing before I even get into the hospitals. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical experiences and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. We have a very special guest today, a Vietnam veteran, a PhD in mechanical engineering from UC Davis, the principal scientist and engineer for Lockheed Corporation NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Associate Professor of Aerospace Medicine and Physiology at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. After many other endeavors as a professor and researcher, he decided to go to medical school at the age of 57 years old. He is currently the the oldest graduating student from a College of Osteopathic Medicine, graduating from MSU College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2004. He has received numerous grants, the most recent being for the short and long-term effect of OMT on pain, opioid usage, cost, and psychosocial factors in adults with chronic low back pain. He is board certified in osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine. Currently, he is a professor of osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine and director of the Center for Neuromusculoskeletal Clinical Research. He has numerous ongoing research projects such as 3D motion capture for SI joint dysfunction. He has nearly 20 published articles, numerous book chapters, and presentations. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Clarence Nicodemus. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great honor to have you on the oldest graduate from a college of osteopathic medical school. I think there's going to be a lot of very interesting stories that I can't wait to hear. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I was, you know, uh, my senior year, I was 60 years old and going to school, my associates were in their twenties, as you know. So it was almost like grandpa and grandson and daughter in many ways. It was it was quite enjoyable, actually. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive into your your trajectory in medical school, if you would share with us a a book recommendation. For? Yeah, just for our audience, you know, so just to get to know you a little bit as a person, 
Do you have any book recommendations? Uh, okay. Well, you need to refine that a little book. Book for 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 like OMM or book for anything medicine. Anything that you would like to share. Anything that you think would be of value for the listeners. Mm. It could be a fun, casual read. It could be uh, a book from Still. Well, um, in terms of reference books, you know, for osteopathic medicine, Foundations uh, book, Foundations of Osteopathic Medicine, it's in its, what, fourth edition right now, I think is, a, is really a good basic thing for the profession. Um, I think about other kinds of things. I'm going to have to think on that. I read, you know, novels all the time. I like uh, mysteries and, and uh, uh, you know, the CIA operative kinds of stuff, <laughs> Clancy books and all that. I don't have a title off yeah. the top of my head. Oh, that's but, fine. But uh, right now it's kind of the best I can do. Yeah. What about a book or movie recommendation? Or I'm sorry, well, a movie or documentary recommendation? Yeah, well, okay. Now we're getting into some good stuff. <laughs> uh, so I don't know much about documentaries, but, but definitely uh, I'm into the action, you know. Uh, Top Gun Maverick and Top Gun the original one is a great movie um, and um, I like everything that Harrison Ford does Indiana Jones series uh, Star Wars series those are all oldies but goodies for me and um, those are the type of movies I, I really like Yeah, I'm, I'm not so much into the the superheroes I like Captain America. He was cool. <laughs> but uh, other than that, that's, that's kind of the movies I like. Yeah. And outside of your, your OMT practice, um, you know, how, Dr. Nicodemus, I'm going to ask you how old you are. Well, I'm four months away from 80 years old. Four months away from 80 years old, and you're still practicing OMM or OMT here at the, the clinic in East Lansing. Yeah. Um, you're still doing numerous research projects. In fact, you are the medical or the director for the, um, the osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal clinical research department. What do you do for fun outside of your busy, um, career? <laughs> well, um, two years ago, I got my pilot's license, um, and I was working on my uh, instrument rating. So that's kind of that's a that's kind of a full time hobby, you know, because it, it takes a lot of concentration and learning new stuff, and it's fun. But um, that was curtailed a bit when I when I went in for quadruple bypass here last October. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't reestablished my flying status yet. But uh, I and then I read. Um, I enjoy being at home with my wife. We do lots of different things. Uh, uh, travel somewhat, not as much as we used to, but uh, you know, just enjoy being at this stage in life. It's nice just to to be, you know, without having to worry about other things. Yeah. And, and what made you want to get your pilot's license at 78 years old? Well, actually, it, it goes back quite a ways. I was, I was born in 1942, if you do the numbers. Uh, and I was born in L.A. My father worked at an at a, uh, aircraft manufacturing plant. He was not drafted into the, the Army at the time because he was working in uh, aircraft manufacturing and was a, was a test pilot for the aircraft that they would produce. And so I grew up with, you know, somebody in a family flying airplanes and 
all through my young life and whatnot, I always made model airplanes and did all that stuff. And of course, one of my favorite pictures is Top Gun, right? But uh, it was just uh, on the bucket list. I wanted to do it. And so I had the uh, weekends and nights and stuff to, to do the practice and learn the stuff, take the tests. So I did it. Nice. Just, to, just to show my dad I could do it. <laughs> yeah. And what are you flying or what will you be flying? Well, what kind we, of plane? we do a um, single engine uh, Piper. Uh, it's actually the plane was made. These are used for training and they are made typically 40, 50 years ago. Uh, the airframes, a little wear and tear, but the engines are replaced periodically. Mm -hmm. uh, some people use a Cessna, like 172. It's a high wing type aircraft, single engine, but it wasn't wide enough for the instructor and I to sit side by side. So we went with the Piper <clears throat> and uh, it's great. It's a lower wing uh, plane and uh, it's just a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it sounds like fun. I thought I thought seriously about getting my pilot's license. And then when I went flying actually in a Piper Cub with one of my friends, I got really sick up in the sky. And I thought, oh. hmm, this must be a sign that this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that uh, is no longer a dream. So, Dr. Nicodemus, you're going to have to tell us because I know the audience has the burning question. How did you decide to go to osteopathic medical school after a very successful career as a, an engineer, a mechanical engineer working for NASA? At 57 years old, you decide to go to medical school. Why? Well, there's a bit of a story. Um, when I got out, graduated from high school, my, my goal was either to go into medicine or engineering. At the time, the closest university, UC Davis, this was in California, um, did not have a medical school. They do now, but then they didn't. So I went into engineering. Well, as I went through engineering, um, so I started my, after Vietnam, I came back to do my PhD work. I wanted to do it, uh, as engineering with the human body. So biomechanics, basically. Um, and, uh, and there's, there's a reason behind that. My, my father was diagnosed with Huntington's disease and I was curious as to, from an engineering standpoint, you know, I was interested in the neurologic circuitry and what went wrong from it, from that viewpoint and so on and so forth. I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll be an engineer, dig, engineer digging into the, the medical aspects of Huntington's disease. Uh, and well, neurology, not my thing. And uh, there's too much reading involved. And <laughs> so, so I, I stuck with the, the biomechanics, the mechanical aspects of the human body joint function, function, body movement, uh, tissue characteristics, so on and so forth. And, and so that's, you know, where I ultimately got my PhD in. And um, it, actually, I had, to, there was a break in, after I finished my coursework, and I went to my, uh, I finished and passed my board exams. So all I had to do was my dissertation, but my GI bill ran out and I had to get a job. And uh, I, so I said, okay, I'll be back. And so I went to work and I went to work for, <clears throat> for the Department of Rehabilitation in California, working uh, with rehab counselors and people with disabilities doing um, aids to daily living, uh, aids for workplace, uh, driving aids, and those kinds of things, the engineering side of all that. But that was, there's not much money in that, and I had to provide for family and whatnot, so I moved over into my second love, right, which was aerospace, 
um, and joined uh, Rockwell International in Downey as a biomedical engineer on their space station uh, proposal uh, program, doing the parts that had to do with a human working and uh, living in space. So Rockwell lost the, uh, the competition, Lockheed won. Lockheed then invited me to join them. So that's how I wound up at NASA JSC uh, with NASA, NASA there uh, doing space station uh, planning uh, and work around the same thing. How do we, how do we support? How do we uh, facilitate people working in space outside on the, uh, on the platforms and whatnot in space suits? Uh, and we had to develop uh, tests that would determine how much forces and things are the person would put into the various frames and whatnot so that they could design the size of the frames to build it. Well, this was back in the 80s, mid-80s, and uh, <clears throat> I did that for six years and had a lot of fun, but I still had the inkling of working closer with humans, you know, and I wanted to work with the astronauts in terms of direct instrumentation inside the suit so we could get some idea of what was happening inside. Well, the medical division strong-armed me because I wasn't a doctor and you're not allowed to touch an astronaut unless you're a doctor, right? So, so I said, oh, okay, well, good enough. And at that point, I said, okay, it's time to finish my degree. Now this is, mind you, this was 17 years later. And so <clears throat> I connected up with uh, UT uh, Medical Branch in Galveston and the Department of Orthopedics and uh, connected up with a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who agreed to become one of my uh, one of my supervisors for the dissertation. You need three people. So I had uh, one person there and I had two out at UC Davis in engineering. Well, normally you can't, you cannot uh, go longer than I forget most places of five or six years with a hiatus between finishing your coursework <clears throat> Uh, advancing the candidacy and finishing your dissertation. And that's usually determined by uh, the, the, the course book. The, uh, when you first come in, there's a book of, uh, I forget what it's called, but it, it establishes all the policies and whatnot for students for that year when you enter. I went back to my book and looked at it and there was no mention of a limitation of the time. I called the graduate school and I said, is there a limitation of time for me? And I graduated and they look up the thing and whatnot. And they said, well, yeah, it's usually five or six years. I said, would you, would you read that part in my book there and see what it says about my year? There's a long pause. And they said, son of a gun, it doesn't have any limitations. <laughs> so they said, there's no reason why you can't finish. So I did. And, uh, so I went part-time with NASA and part-time finished my dissertation and then moved down to Galveston. And I was involved in uh, orthopedic spine research there for seven years. And also the aerospace group um, teaching folks uh, up at NASA. Uh, some of the astronauts would come down and get training. Anyway, uh, and I began to look toward the future as to say, okay, where do I go from here? And I said, wouldn't it be nice if I could sort of direct myself? Uh, and I've been working with people with back pain, working with the surgeons and so on and so forth, but only from a researcher standpoint. What about medical school? And I thought my wife would fall off the chair when I mentioned that, <laughs> but she was very supportive. Uh, and I looked into it and, and osteopathic medicine was the best fit because of the, you know, the hands-on biomechanics uh, manipulation and so on and so forth. And 
Dr. Nicodemus, I'm, I was going to ask you, how did you, how did you find out about osteopathic medicine? Was there, did you have a DO that you saw as your physician or did you have some role model or did you just research well, it as a good researcher, look into yeah. osteopathic medicine? Yeah. So, um, the first step I took was to determine whether or not I, as a engineer, uh, would be good with hands-on people, you know, touching people and, and moving people around just in general. So I actually got a license in massage therapy, um, learned how to be a massage therapist and techniques and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, got a license and worked with people for a while on weekends. This is in addition to the work I was doing at the university. And discovered that I absolutely loved it. And in fact, it just really whetted my appetite for, for wanting to know what's going on deeper. What more can I do underneath these hands? And I, I hooked up with uh, John Upledger and his group out in Florida and took courses from them <clears throat> in cranial and other ways. And I, I spent some time talking with John uh, who was a DO. If you don't know him, he, he was a DO that went, that was a faculty member uh, at MSU and then split off and did his own thing in cranial sacral work in Florida. <clears throat> and um, he really inspired me basically and showed me and demonstrated to me things that are going on. And uh, that's really what got me interested in osteopathic medicine. Uh, yeah. And from there, I just applied. So it seems like there's, well, one, I think it's very apparent that you're a lifelong learner and you're always, you're, you're curious and you kind of follow your curiosity, but there seems to be quite a difference in profession between someone who does research and someone who is doing hands-on therapy. How did you, how did you have this desire to do hands-on therapy? Well, um, it's a good question. And I asked myself that question. Um, you know, inside everybody, I suppose, is a desire to help people and to do what you can based on whatever skills and uh, intellectual property you have to you know, help somebody out, whether it's help them change a tire or whether it's help them with low back pain. And, and so I discovered in my, in the work with John Upledger and with the massage therapy that I could be very effective because of what I know about biomechanics and how the, how the body works. You know, it's like, <clears throat> When you're trained in medical school, you're trained at a certain level, you just, you flat don't have time to get into the real depth of why things work so much. You just have to observe and know and understand enough to be able to clinically work with it until you get into a specialty and then you dig down there. But um, <clears throat> having had all the engineering background of how a body functions, my gosh, you know, uh, when I'm presented with a patient who has this, that, or the other thing, I mean, I really understand at a, at a greater depth what's going on behind it. So it really helps me uh, work with that person to, you know, help them get along. Um, and and I can't, I can't really separate my portions of my brain you know, from a clinical to a research. When I'm working on a person, I'm asking questions, I'm observing things. How is this person behaving or responding differently than the other person I saw or the, the thousands that I've seen before this person? And what's similar? Are there similar patterns developing? So there's a research cycle going on all of the time when you're treating people. And I really encourage um, students, uh, residents as well, to develop that kind of an approach because 
it really improves your ability to help people uh, because it's more than just treating them as they come in and you, you make your notes and you move on. You learn something from every single person and then you collectively learn from a group of, of people that come in that says, well, you know, this, this approach doesn't work as well as that approach. Why? And can I, can I make it better? And so on and so forth. So it's really, it's really a combination of the two things. I see. And I should have asked this question earlier, but you talked about how your research in biomechanics has influenced your clinical approach and the questions that you're asking yourself about the different dysfunctions that you're finding in the patient that you're treating. What was your PhD, your dissertation on, and why did you choose that? Well, it, it was actually on the, the kinematics or movement of the carpus, the carpal bone to the wrist. Uh, that was a problem that this sponsor or a supervisor, orthopedic surgeon, the hand surgeon, and uh, he wanted to be able to visualize uh, more about what, how these, um, the set of uh, eight bones works together uh, in the wrist. And so I said, how would you like to see it in 3D? And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we can, there's a way that we can uh, take a cadaver and put pins into the bones, CT the whole thing, and take motion analysis uh, film of uh, multiple cameras, uh, looking at these markers and mathematically relate them. And I can give you uh, an animation of exactly how those bones move. And he says, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I said, no. And that was my PhD dissertation. How interesting. And I'm going to follow up that question with a current project that you have going, which is 3D imaging of SI joint dysfunction. Okay. So that's a bit of a challenging one that um, it's, it's the one that I originally set out to do when I came here uh, six years ago. Um, <clears throat> uh, so let me clarify that I, when I, when I finished my, uh, um, my, uh, residency in 2007, <clears throat> went to California and opened a private practice for, uh, seven or eight years and then came back in 2016 because I wanted to do the research based on the patterns that I saw and so on and so forth. So that's why I came back. So six years ago when I came, that was my goal is to understand the SI joint and its function, uh, just structurally, you know, and in and, and a motion way, but also as it relates to things like, and especially chronic low back pain. And um, so I have several threads of uh, investigation one is an anatomical one where we use cadavers uh, and literally dissect open them up take a look see what's there uh, and try to understand from the morphology somewhat about the function two is um, uh, radiographic uh, in other words my, what my uh, line of inquiry there is could we use MRI with some additional software to essentially look into uh, the SI joint without having to do the anatomical studies? Can we? Because cadavers are typically older people and they might have dysfunctions of all kinds. And I like to see what a normal one looks like. And most people won't let me cut that open and look at it. Um, <laughs> And I don't know why, but they do. And <laughs> so I was, I'm trying to find out if we could do it with, a, with the, uh, you know, with an MRI. Turns out it's very difficult. So the third approach is from, uh, from function. In other words, what do we see um, when in the clinic, if a person has a uh, an SI joint dysfunction. What other things do we see that comes along with it? 
And so far that one has borne the most fruit because we see some very definite patterns uh, with high um, uh, levels of cor uh, uh, correlation with the existence or presence of an SI joint function. It doesn't prove it, it just shows the relationship is uh, highly correlated. So those are the three kinds of things. Now the three-dimensional aspect of it <clears throat> has to do with the, uh, well, the, the other one was, was motion analysis. We were trying to see if we could detect changes in um, gait using motion camera, uh, motion capture, to see if uh, pre-post treatment made a difference in, in gait when people would walk on a treadmill uh, and, and whatnot. So we, that's actually a fourth avenue of investigation. Uh, the one that's currently running the most uh, and the most successful at this time is the, the clinical one where we have seen patterns develop uh, and we're following those to try to understand more about that relationship. And we've set up a number of clinical trials where we're comparing uh, treatment uh, using OMT versus other treatment to try to see if, um, essentially to prove the hypothesis wrong that the SI joint really is one of the, the basic causes of chronic low back pain and these patterns that develop. So that's really where I am. Can you talk a little bit about some of the patterns that maybe you have seen sure. in patients with chronic low back pain? Sure, I can talk all day about that if you would like. Um, <laughs> um, so if you go back into the literature and look at chronic low back pain over the past 100 years, for example, you find that 100 years ago, and maybe 90 and 80 years ago, folks were absolutely convinced that the SI joint was the source of most chronic low back pain. Not SI joint pain, but the fact that it's a dysfunctional SI joint causing a variety of things to happen, what reduces itself to what's called chronic low back pain. All right, so then came the advent of uh, radiology. Uh, you had to take images of the spine and pelvis and whatnot, and they say, well, look at there. Look at this mess we have for a lumbar spine. That's obviously the cause of low back pain. Look at those discs, look at those, uh, you know, those osteophytes that are growing. Look at the mess that that, that low back, uh, those vertebra uh, uh, shown in, in the, in the x-ray. That's obviously the problem. And so the focus really went over to the spine as opposed to the SI joint because x-rays, MRIs, CT scans, you can't see anything in the SI joint. And if you read a radiology report, every single one says, well, the SI joints look okay to me. Unless there's gross, you know, uh, osteophytic, you know, degeneration around them or something. So <clears throat> there's a lot of research has gone on, sponsored by NIH and others, focused on understanding low back pain from the standpoint of um, uh, lumbar spine dysfunction. Well, that's just not the case. It's, and what I mean by that is uh, when, when you inquiry the NIH website, the homepage, and you ask what are the causes of chronic low back pain, you get about 12, a list of about 12 things. And they all have to do with the lumbar spine. Their, their radiculopathies, their uh, tumors, their uh, you know, uh, spondylolisthesis, there's a variety of other things, uh, um, severe scoliosis, and so on and so forth. Not one of them mentions the SI joint. 
And yet, when you look also in the literature to people who work on chronic low back pain primarily throughout the world, they will tell you that for the most part, chronic low back pain really doesn't have much to do with the spine. It's really what's called non-specific, means there's something else going on, a variety of factors involved that it's very complicated. And that's why, for example, when I talk with two MDs that I work with down in the VA, they said they had exactly two days of instruction on what they referred to as musculoskeletal um, you know, exam type things and chronic low back pain. Well, we in the osteopathic medical world know that things uh, are more organized than that. So getting back to what I think is going on and the reason for my research and coming from California back to MSU is I think that the SI joint is the proximal cause of low back pain because we observe a certain pattern of, of pain generators that exist with virtually every person who has chronic low back pain. Yet flexors are tight, they may be tender, either you know, bilaterally or unilaterally. The IT bands are tight, maybe tender, uh, and accompanied with the TFL that tightens them up. Those are usually sore, typically, either, again, unilaterally, bilaterally. Hip adductors are, um, are typically tender as well. And uh, the other things, so those are muscles that are involved. And then you get the ligaments, the iliolumbar ligaments and the posterior sacral ligaments. When you ask a person <clears throat> who comes into the clinic, complains of low back pain, I, when you ask them to point with one finger where they hurt, they'll put that finger right smack dab on the, the, the uh, intersection between the iliolumbar ligaments and the posterior sacral ligament every time. There'll be some other things like, well, my piriformis hurts, my butt hurts, my side of my thigh hurts, and so on, that they reflect these other muscles and things. But the first place they point is to that uh, SI-related ligament. Now, in the literature, again, the, the standard of care to assess SI joint pain is to put an injection, um, you know, lidocaine or whatever, into the SI joint and see if it shuts down the pain. Well, the problem with that is the pain is typically not in the SI joint, but around it on the ligaments. And when you splash in um, a, uh, an analgesic like that, it's going to shut down some of that local pain for the uh, for the ligament as well. And then it doesn't really do anything that you couldn't do just by putting your finger on and say, does that hurt? So in my mind, the engineering mind takes over and say, well, if your theory is correct and all these things are generated from the, uh, you know, the SI joint, then treatment, if, if that's true, then all you'd have to do is treat the SI joint, strictly speaking, stabilize it so once you treat it, it stays there. It takes some time to do with some exercises. But if you were to do that, and that's all, not treat the piriformis, not treat the, the, uh, the uh, psoas, not treat anything else, just, and, and of course, any lumbar uh, dysfunctions that appear as a result, just treat that have the person do some exercises and iterate on that over, you know, sequential visits, that all the other pain ought to go away or diminish significantly. And it does, because I did that on hundreds and hundreds of people. I proved to myself that that in fact is the case. 
fix the SI joint, stabilize it with exercise, and do some other things, of course, to support the person, but primarily that's all you have to do. And that chronic low back pain will either go away or diminish significantly. So one question, a follow-up question to you, Dr. Nicodemus, mm-hmm. is what about how important in your mind, in your engineering mind, is it to fix the pubic symphysis? Because, you know, I've been taught how important it is to fix that all-important joint because it's such a pivotal joint in the stabilization of the pelvis. Yeah. If you don't, If and- you don't fix that, then anything that you do in the sacrum is almost nullified. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm really uh, remiss in saying just fix the SI joint. You mm-hmm. have to fix the, what, what I refer to as the limbo-sacro-pelvic structure. All right, so you start with the SI joint, and of course you pick you, you, all of the issues with the pelvis uh, it could be a dominant rotations or shears, uh, the, the pubic symphysis, and any uh, lesions that you find on the lumbar spine. That all, all those things have to be corrected. But fundamentally, what you're doing is you're reestablishing function of the SI joints. I see. And you're saying, now, once we correct what we diagnose in the osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal world as a right on left or a, a right on left torsion, left on right torsion. If we're fixing these and doing exercises to strengthen those ligaments to support um, the sacrum, that low back pain, that tenderness on the IT band or on the um, TFL, the tensor fascia lata, or um, tenderness on that iliolumbar ligament will be diminished. Yes. Uh, and here's where I'll really blow your mind. Um, I don't really put much emphasis on right or left, left or right. Uh, you, you could do whatever you want to do to make sure that, that those SI joints are functional. Um, it has to do with how you approach it, how you learn to approach it in any way is, is fine, as long as you end up with functional SI joints. Uh, and I've developed some techniques that are a little different than what you see in a textbook. Um, probably a little controversial, but nonetheless, they work for me. And uh, it's very much addressed to going right after those SI joints directly um, and uh, making sure that they're functional and then checking everything else and make sure, make sure the rest of the limbopelvic, the limbosacropelvic region is also uh, correct. But I don't, so, I, don't, I don't dwell so much on left and right and right and left and so on and so forth. I just, um, I, period. So how can we know that the, the sacrum is functioning properly? What parameters can we use? Well, um, there are a variety. Uh, you can, the easiest and most direct way is to look at uh, what kind of movement you get in the joint. You know, by when the person is, is uh, prone, uh, by literally you know, pressing on, you know, pressure, downward pressure on the sacrum, seeing how much uh, motion you get. You can, you can do PSISs, you know, do a rocking on PSISs. Uh, and you can put them supine and do rocking on the ASISs. And you can judge whether or not you have equal, um, equal uh, motion. You can um, pick up the leg, uh, flex knee and uh, abducted a bit and uh, with one hand monitoring the SI joint underneath while they're supine. And you can press downward on that thigh through the, through the hip joint to, into the SI joint to see if you get movement. You know, there's a variety of ways 
uh, to compare to see if you have movement. I see. And you talked about some techniques that you use, which may be a little controversial to fix the, the SI joint dysfunction. Can you share those techniques with us? Uh, not very well verbally. You kind of okay. have to see them, but it's a very direct method, um, a very simple method. And it seems to correct a lot of things all in one, one uh, step. Um, not eliminating all the rest of the things you have to check, the lumbar spine, pubic symphysis, and so on. But it takes care of the anomalous and the sacrum kind of all in one, one step. Hmm. Okay. I'll be happy uh, to, you know, share that with anybody anytime, but uh, I can, I, it would be difficult to verbally explain it. Yeah. See, that's why we need to make this podcast a video audio podcast so that yes. you can demonstrate live. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then Dr. Nicodemus, I wanted to also ask you the importance, given the fact that you're, you're the director of the, the osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal clinical research department, how, how important in your mind is clinical research for the specialty of ONMM? Well, it's, it's absolutely critical. Uh, it's, um, and, and by that, I mean, in several ways, um, we as a profession in, in this specialty, um, are, are fundamentally caregivers. We like to help people. We like to, to, uh, see patients and, and, give them a hand and help them out. And that's why we came into it. And that's what we like to do every day. That kind of person typically isn't a research person. They haven't gone through a, a, you know, a graduate school and studied research of various kinds and, and so on and so forth. They went right to the target, which is giving care to people, which is great. But <clears throat> the trouble is as a result, other people don't learn much about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and why it works. As a result of that, we suffer from credibility, um, not only amongst associates, you know, uh, MDs and DOs, but amongst, um, you know, third-party payers. Like, well, we really don't know what you do, and so we don't think it's worth a whole lot. At least there's no literature to show that it is. So we're not going to pay you very much. Well, then that translates into people not getting into this, this specialty because it doesn't pay very much. And pretty soon it just spirals downhill and, and it'll go away. So it's absolutely critical that we begin at least in, in some ways uh, to understand what we do, measure what we do, quantify it, publish it, document it so that others can learn about it. Not only from the standpoint of the patient's well-being, because it is absolutely the most effective, cost-effective and efficacious approach to things like chronic low back pain compared to any other um, treatment. But it, it also um, is, I already lost the other point I was going to make, but, but it, it's, it's something that is just not well known enough for people to understand why they should refer to this. And, and what I mean is insurance companies, oddly enough, will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get multiple epidurals, multiple EMGs, uh, consultations to spine surgeons, uh, pain management of various kinds and levels, uh, spinal cord stimulators, all that do not solve the problem. And yet they're reticent to pay us for, you know, a few bucks to treat a person for five or six times and fix the problem. And we see that every single day of the week as we treat patients. So 
we we have got to document this and understand what we do. You know, that's the second part of this is through the years. If you go back and look at our literature and look at uh, the legacy people, you know, and so on and so forth. Most all of that is uh, observational, is conjecture. There's no science behind it. It works. It works like gangbusters. I know, you know, everybody who does this knows. But there's nothing to back it up. And so uh, that's why I think it's critical. And, and then the other part is, the, as I mentioned when I was describing the two halves of your mind, when you work on a person, there's the research part that's observe, observing what you do, looking for patterns, looking for commonalities and things so that you can write case studies, so you can tell other people about this. Uh, because we can't hide this under a bushel. You know, this light has got to shine out and it's not going to do it unless we get it out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's also one of the goals of this podcast is to try to make known the specialty known more and better understood. And so having guests on like yourself is very is very important for that uh, that message to get out there. So I so I appreciate it um you being on again uh, here on the podcast. Dr. Nicodemus, I wanted to also ask you what is your what is your vision for the the CNR or CNCR or the Center for Neuromusculoskeletal Clinical Research at, here at MSU. What is your vision for that okay, clinical the research purpose, institute? The whole purpose <clears throat> for doing, for creating that center was, is to do exactly what I was just talking about. Um, do the research for um, the specialty that needs to be done from um, the very fundamental stuff, from uh, tissue inter interaction, molecular interaction, when you put your hands on somebody and manip manipulate the tissue or the joint, to the, the, uh, the neural responses that come out of the neuromusculoskeletal system, to you know, um, patient uh, responses to given the pain syndromes and the use of opioids and all that kind of stuff, how, that, how does that affect it? So the whole range of what we do, how we do it, why it works, um, you know, because here at MSU, we have absolutely unique opportunity amongst all uh, colleges of osteopathic medicine because we have departments of physiology of, uh, you know, um, microbiology of, you know, every aspect that you can think of that would come to bear on these problems. Uh, and, and a school of veterinary medicine where we have, you know, animal studies that we could do and uh, combine their, their approaches and their tools to do that. And we have a whole, you know, um, the uh, CHM has just opened uh, uh, that whole department of biomedical engineering to build a whole building forum filled with people who are into things like artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, pattern recognition and radiologic images and all that sort of thing. And we can, we can, you know, bring all that stuff to bear on these problems that haven't been looked at for years. Erwin uh, Kaur back in the sixties was, he was a physiologist and he wrote several books having to do with kind of how things worked uh, in osteopathic medicine. And he was the only and last person to do that of any significance. So we have to pick up that, <clears throat> that mantle and move forward. And that's the purpose of this. We have um, <clears throat> actually full time, we've got the two other PhDs beside myself. We have, um, you know, that Yasik uh, Chalowicki and uh, John Popovich. And we have uh, uh, Richard Halgren, who's like a consultant to us, PhD, doing work on neck muscles and so on. 
And we've got two research coordinators. So we have a, a really nice core of people who are able to, and very experienced in doing research, uh, you know, in the laboratory and in, in clinical applications, working together with our faculty. <clears throat> Lisa works with them a lot. Jamie's doing some work with them. Jake Rowan's doing work with them. Um, and uh, Chris Pollard's doing work with them. And so <clears throat> uh, we're, we're putting clinicians and researchers together to work on these issues. And that's where the action is. Now, is this center, this ONMM Research Center here at MSU, is that only for faculty associated with MSU? Meaning if, if there's another student at another osteopathic medical school or physician who does ONMM, can they reach out to you and get advice or help and guidance sure. in doing research? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're there for. <clears throat> okay, so this is not specifically for people associated with MSU. No, I mean, that's where it's housed. <clears throat> and that's where most of our resources are. But ab absolutely, we're, for example, I'm, I've been working for the past three years with a group down at uh, VA hospital in Chicago in physical medicine and rehab. Uh, they are open to learning principles of osteopathic medicine as it relates to chronic low back pain. And they've discovered, surprise, surprise, that they're very effective and they're MDs. And so we're looking at and have proposed the fact to the Department of Defense, uh, a major contract, uh, a major proposal here just recently um, we, you know, it's been submitted. We haven't gotten approval yet, but um, to do some clinical studies down there that mimics what we do here uh, in terms of applying osteopathic medicine to this problem, to the veterans down there. Yeah. So we're absolutely open to anybody who, who is interested. And so how can people get in contact with you with their research ideas? Uh, well, or with the center, uh, I guess the best way would be to through email right now to me. Okay. And if it's okay with you, you know, I'll include your email in the show notes so that people that sure. listen to this episode can email you. Sure. Okay. And then one other question, we're coming to the end of our, of our hour, but one question that I definitely did want to ask you. OMT doesn't, would you agree that OMT doesn't work for everybody? I guess would be my first question. And the follow-up to that is, why do you think it doesn't work for everybody with okay, low back you, pain, let's say? Okay. When you say work for everybody, do you mean the provider or for the patient? I'm talking about for the patient. Okay. Um, lots of reasons. Um, the, could, the problem could be something more organic that we can't, uh, we can't affect by manipulation. Uh, that's normally ruled out as in your initial uh, exchange <clears throat> with the patient, some of their medical histories and their personal, personal history, trying to understand how they got there to the clinic. Um, second things are psychological reasons. Uh, some people uh, their chronic pain is their thing and they really don't want to be separated from it. Although they'll say they do, but in reality, they really don't. Um, and, and that's when we need to get psychology involved, psychiatry to help them through that. Uh, because it's, it's more prevalent than you think. The other aspect is the use of medications, uh, that alter responses that we normally would expect in somebody. Uh, you know, the, the system that we're dealing with is the neuromusculoskeletal system, uh, not just musculoskeletal. So there is a very heavy neural compound that can be, be affected by uh, a variety of medications, opioids, the biggest one. And, uh, and the third one, fourth one, whatever I am, number I'm on, is the person's uh, willingness to help themselves. One of our principles in osteopathic uh, 
medicine is that we see ourselves as a partner with the patient, not as a fixer of the patient. The patient has to understand what's going on and have a willingness to help do their part. Without that, it doesn't work. So those are some of the things off the top of my head why things don't necessarily work. I see. Okay. And then you're you're nearly 80 years old and you're yeah. still working full time. Yeah. When are you going to retire and why do you keep working? What is it that drives you? Um, this research, I'm bound determined to prove <clears throat> um, my theory. Uh, and uh, what else would I do? Come on. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I, I love to do it. Uh, I, I love helping people. I actually get paid for it. I mean, what else can you ask for? Um, and, and, we, and, and I'm contributing to something, you know, to society in general. So I enjoy doing it. And so when you say proving your theory, mm -hmm. can you just summarize again your theory that you're trying yeah. to prove? SI joint dysfunction is the proximal cause of chronic low back pain, period. Okay, great. And, and if, if somebody presents to you uh, in, in, the, you know, in the clinic and said, well, I have an IT band that's tight and it hurts, you push it on the, the lateral aspect of your thigh, that person has an SI joint dysfunction. Person comes in who says, "Oh, I got these groin pain, and it's not, you know I know that it's the, the hip flexors are real tight and they they're tender sometimes." That person has an SI joint dysfunction. You know, it's almost guaranteed, and you can do what you want with that uh, that iliotibial band and the hip flexor, and you can roll them, you can stretch them, you can do counter strain, you can do all kinds of things, and it's not going to go away until you fix the SI joint dysfunction. And um, that's my theory. Your theory is that the SI joint is really the, the main, is the principal driver of proximal low back pain. No, it's, it's, it's well, it's a legal term, proximal cause. It's a root cause of low back, chronic low back pain. It's the root cause. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and, and, it, and it's because of biomechanical changes uh, therefore, load paths are different, so the ligaments get involved, and there is a kind of a reflexive thing, the neuromusculoskeletal thing that responds to a dysfunctional uh, joint that comes back, feeds back, and uh, changes muscle tension. And that's it's commonly known as uh, arthrogenic uh, muscle inhibition. We've seen it in other joints. It's never been applied directly to the SI joint. I think that's what's going on here. And this is after you've ruled out canal stenosis, facet arthropathy, oh, yeah. degenerative disc disease, right, et cetera, et cetera. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And some of those can be at the same time. You can have, sure. you know, facet syndrome and all that all at the same time. It complicates it, but nonetheless, the this uh, syndrome, I call it a syndrome, uh, is still here. Absolutely. Okay. And then finally, Dr. Nicodemus, I've got to ask you, so you're approaching 80 years of life on planet Earth, and you have a career and a life of experience. What is your advice for for osteopathic medical students and osteopathic physicians alike, especially those who, who maybe haven't found much value in OMT or don't use OMT in their practice, maybe because they haven't seen value in it. What, what would you say to them? Well, um, yeah, I know about 95% of the graduated DOs don't go on to use it in their practice, which is unfortunate. On the other hand, unless you use it all of the time, you're not very good at it. So you won't see very good, uh, you know, very good results. So um, what I would, would say is um, investigate OMT from the standpoint of 
how it works beyond just the techniques that you learn in class, because there's so much more there. Uh, it's our interaction with the, with the nervous system as much as anything else that we're doing with that patient. We're not just pushing tissue around. Uh, there are a hundred different ways to do any one of the maneuvers that we're talking about, but it's what effect are we having on that body? And that's the really intriguing, interesting and effective part of our specialty. And if, and if that doesn't interest you and you'd rather do gynecology, well, that's fine. That's great. But you could, you know, you can learn things that'll help no matter what you do, but you have to practice this specialty in order to see good results. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for your time and sure. um, your words of wisdom and sharing your life experience, particularly talking about your research and the research projects that you have going on. It's been really fascinating. And hopefully, hopefully many people contact you with research ideas so that we can speak a more scientific language to our colleagues. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dr. Nicodemus. We'll have you back on the podcast, hopefully in the near future. And you have a, a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. I hope I have as sharp of a mind and clarity of thought when I'm 80 years old as Dr. Nicodemus. What an inspiration. Hope you all learned something from this conversation. If you have a research project and would like to reach out to the MSU Center for Neuromusculoskeletal Clinical Research, I will leave Dr. Nicodemus's email in the show notes. As always, like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a review and stay tuned for the next episode.